Welcome to this first edition of the Book of Mormon Digging Deeper, Come Follow Me edition. These episodes will run each week and follow the Come Follow Me study guide and will run alongside my regular Book of Mormon Digging Deeper podcast episodes. You will be able to identify them by the episode title, which will begin with CFM number 1, 2, 3, etc. Don't worry, I will still put out regular episodes as interesting subjects come up, but in addition to those, I wanted to put out these shorter episodes so that we could study the Book of Mormon together. Many others are doing the same thing, so between us all, you should have plenty of resources to gather all the information you need to get the very most out of each week's Book of Mormon Come Follow Me study program. I hope you enjoy them, and more importantly, I pray that from these episodes and from your own personal study, you will find your testimony strengthening every week and your faith getting stronger and stronger. May we all grow and learn this year as we come follow the Savior. And now, week one. Welcome to this new year of scripture study. This year we have the opportunity to study the Book of Mormon, which for me is a wonderful thing because the Book of Mormon means so much to me. This first week we are introduced to the title page of the Book of Mormon, which was written by Moroni and guided by the hand of the Lord. It clearly states that the purpose of this book is to, quote, show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, and that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever, and also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. The Book of Mormon is considered the keystone of our religion. A keystone of a bridge or of an arch is that stone at the top, right in the middle, that acts as the wedge. It is the stone that keeps all other stones in place, and if it is removed, the entire structure falls down. So too, the Book of Mormon is the foundational element of our faith. Not because it is the only source of knowledge, learning, or wisdom for our faith, but rather because its very existence is the foundational evidence of the veracity of Joseph Smith's story and testimony of his visits, first with Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus Christ, and second, his personal visit from an angel called Moroni, who appeared to him when he was just 17 years old and revealed to him the existence and location of an ancient record of his long-dead people. Consider for a moment the timing of the unfolding of the Joseph Smith story. It began when he was just 14 years old. At that time, 
he claimed that due to the religious fervor in his community and the conflicting interpretations of scripture and religious philosophy that he was confronted with, that he was confused as to what path he should follow. After being prompted by a scripture in the epistle of James, he went into the woods and prayed, whereupon he was visited by the Father and the Son. Now, this claim was made by a 14-year-old kid, and everyone knows kids can have great imaginations. But to think that a 14-year-old kid could concoct, lay out, and execute a quote-unquote long con, as it were, to fool the world with such an elaborate scheme as he was about to unfold, is ludicrous. His initial claim of the heavenly visit was followed up three years later when he told the world of his visit by an angel named Moroni who had deposited a book of golden plates in a hill nearby. Once he revealed that, he was on the hook to actually produce a book at some point. Otherwise, his whole story would fall apart and that would have been the end of it. Now, producing a book is no small thing, and it would require considerable scholarship and general knowledge, even if it only claimed to be a stylized historical fiction. But claiming it to be an actual, true, historical account of an unknown people, his task would have been monumentally difficult. You see, fiction gives any author the right to create characters, settings, and actions at his pleasure. He does not have to defend any of his content because it is fiction. But to present a book as an authentic and true account is a completely different matter. Every story, every bit of cultural detail, every geographical detail, every description of wildlife and climate and geography and rivers and so on must be able to withstand future discovery, scrutiny, and exploration. Think about it. Plato wrote about Atlantis, a lost civilization that sank into the sea millennia ago, and people have been searching for it ever since. If and when they find it, it better fit the description he gave of it being made of three concentric rings and so on. Claiming a document is authentic places the burden upon the author of being correct throughout the book. For a 14-year-old boy to start off the whole thing with the story of a visit from the father of the son, and then follow that up three years later with another story of an angel who would give him an ancient record, and the tools with which to translate it, well, that's a bold move. But now, Joseph an uneducated farm boy with very little formal training, needed to get busy producing that record. And since he was going to claim that it was a true record, he was going to have to produce a book full of unknown details, places and names and events that would be studied and researched for years, centuries to come. And he would have to realize that only if this book could withstand the test of time would his story hold up. Otherwise, the whole thing would come crashing down as one massive fraud that might fool some of the people some of the time, but would not withstand the scrutiny of serious research by scholars and scientists in the years to come. 
Had all of this been a fraud, it might have seemed plausible to a 14-year-old kid. But surely as he grew and matured into a young man, he would have recognized the folly of his youth in putting forth such a story, if it were all made up. Instead, as he grew and matured, he continued to testify of the truth of his story, and he did in fact bring forth a book, an amazing book of over 530 pages, full of marvelous detail. He included 337 names, of which 188 were new and unique to the Book of Mormon. He included details about life in Egypt that were unknown in his day, but which have since been proven true. He described a journey through the Arabian Peninsula, through unexplored lands, on a path that we now know did exist and is called the Frankincense Trail, but was unknown in his day. And this brings up another point for consideration. If writing a false story that the author is going to present as true, it behooves him to give as little detail as possible, because every detail included can be checked and verified by researchers, either now or later on. On the other hand, a true story, even an abridgment, should have as much detail as it can in order to establish its credibility. As an example, in 1 Nephi 16, verse 34, when relating the death of Ishmael, patriarch of the family that ventured forth with Lehi's family, it says, quote, And it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in a place which is called Nahum. And then the next chapter begins by saying, and it came to pass that we did again take our journey in the wilderness, and we did travel nearly eastward from that time forth. In these two passages, we find great detail. Had the author been making up this story to present as fact, they would simply have stayed away from detail and would have simply said, And Ishmael died and was buried, and we did take again our journey through the wilderness. You see, that way the author cannot be challenged. He is simply saying, a guy died and we kept going. But when you put in a name for the place and then a detail such as from that time forth we did travel merely eastward, then scholars can say, where is Nahum? And having already established in the story that they were traveling south along the eastern side of the Red Sea, to say that from that time forth they traveled nearly eastward, would invite researchers to search for a way through the mountains that border the Red Sea. Remember, in Joseph's day, no one knew of the existence of the Frankincense Trail, nor did anyone know or suspect of the existence of a place called Nahum. It was only in 2019 that researchers found the ruins of a settlement with an altar upon which was inscribed the name Nahum. And remarkably, it is that place where the Frankincense Trail turns from going down the eastern side of the Red Sea eastward across the Arabian Empty Quarter. Bottom line, liars keep things simple. Historians put in as much detail and information as they can. And the Book of Mormon is filled with thousands of details, almost all of which were unknown in Joseph's day, but which are being discovered and verified as true on an almost daily basis today. 
How interesting is it then that for a document such as the Book of Mormon, so superbly written, that its authors, while testifying of its truth, nevertheless turned to another source for verification of its authenticity. They all understood that in matters of faith in God and Jesus Christ, it is not intellectual certainty that would build lasting testimonies, but rather only through the witness of the most unimpeachable source of validation, the Holy Ghost. And so we must turn to the words of the book itself to find out how to verify it. That process is mentioned again and again throughout the Book of Mormon, but the most powerful statement is found at the very end of the abridgment in the words written by the very man who as a resurrected angel himself, even Moroni, then presented it to young Joseph Smith to translate for the world. He said, And I seal up these records after I have spoken a few words by way of exhortation to you. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that ye shall read them, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that ye shall receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. That's a pretty powerful challenge and one not likely to be made by someone attempting to foist such a massive fraud upon the world. I testify that the Book of Mormon is true and that it will change your life for the better if you let it. Put Moroni's words to the test and challenge your friends and loved ones to do the same. You will be blessed, I promise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Until next week, I'm Mark Swint. Thank you for listening.